Hi, I wanna welcome you to Conversations with Elizabeth Johnston. I'm Elizabeth and I have an amazing guest today, Sarah McDougall. And we are going to be dealing with a very important topic of how churches enable and empower abusers. This is so important. This is something that very few people are talking about and that we want to shed light on today in this podcast. But first, let me tell you about Sarah real quick. Sarah McDougall is an author, speaker, trainer, and abuse recovery coach who works exclusively with women wounded by toxic relationships in the faith community. She emphasizes biblical prevention, responsible strategy, and holistic healing in her appearances on podcasts, TV, radio, training events, and lectures. She has also recently gone through um, cancer and chemotherapy. She is just an amazing woman. Uh, I mean, she is a fighter. And I have recently been introduced to her work in recent months and have been amazed by what she has to offer God's people, what she has to offer the body of Christ. This is an area where the body of Christ is sick and we need help. And Sarah has that help to give us today. And so please share this podcast with your ministry friends, with pastors, with people that you know are dealing with abusive relationships and abuse inside the church. And Sarah, I just want to say thank you for coming on and welcome you to Conversations with Elizabeth Johnston. Thank you, Elizabeth. It is an honor to be here. I have to admit, I have a little bit of hair envy. I love your hair. It's so beautiful. Oh, girl, I I have warrior envy when it comes to you, okay? If I could have your hair and say that I endured what you just went through on top of 2020 and what it did to most of us, you were fighting cancer in 2020 on top of that, right? Yes, I was. I got diagnosed at the end of 2019 and Valentine's Day of 2020, I was in chemotherapy for an 18 hour day. And two and a half weeks later, all my waist length hair that I had had long for like all my adult life almost, um, it all fell out and went in the trash can. And then I spent months bald and in radiation therapy and chemotherapy. And then I spent months in chemotherapy sessions, radiation therapy every single day for weeks, dealing with fatigue. I'm a homeschool mom, so I was still homeschooling Mm. my kids and Mm. um, living displaced at the time and working Mm. as an abuse coach and doing coaching sessions and working on materials and online course development and stuff as I could in between throwing my guts up and trying to take naps and hot baths and that kind of thing. Um, It was a year, but hey, I'm not bald anymore. I don't look like Mr. Clean. So (laughs) I am so cool with that. So guys, when I say... When I say warrior mama, I mean, there, there's just no words. I, I mean it. And uh, just very grateful to have Sarah with us uh, here today. And we want to talk about something very important that actually kind of piggybacks off of a story uh, that recently has been, uh, gosh, what do I say? Like pretty shocking in the faith community uh, about Ravi Zacharias. And uh, many, many of us followed Ravi Zacharias, watched his videos and his sermons, and read his books. Many of you have his books on your shelves. He was accused of sexual immorality, and his ministry, which is called um, RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, came out before his death and said that he was innocent. While they were investigating, they, they thought that he was innocent. 
But the investigation continued, and then Ravi recently died, and, you know, he had a funeral, I think, in a mega church, and everyone sang the praises of Ravi. Um, and then after his death, apparently the devices that he would not release previously to the investigators were released and his computers and phones and everything. And they found the accusations were not only true, but were far worse than they could have ever imagined. And I posted on social media, um, uh, a week or two ago about this. And I said, I just read part of the report from RZIM last night. It's just beyond disgusting. My heart breaks for the victims, especially the one Ravi publicly gaslighted and sued. I pray she and all his victims find healing and comfort through the Prince of Peace. And I pray that church and ministry leaders everywhere learn a huge lesson from this about not giving Christian men a pass. Ravi Zacharias was a fraud, period. It's dishonest and re-traumatizing for his victims to say to come to any other conclusion than that. And the reason we're talking about this today is because I want you to set your sights on his victims. And I want you to think about what it would be like to be a victim of Ravi's, someone who was committing sexual immorality with Ravi, which means that they are guilty as well, that they were not... Um, we're not saying that someone who was committing sexual immorality with Ravi was not also guilty of doing something wrong. But when they came out and said, I'm racked with guilt, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, we need to address what has happened. We need to come clean. And then they are gaslighted and sued and lied about and accused of racketeering. That is like criminal. And the the skirt needed to be pulled up on that and what was taking place. And when the victim tried to do that, they were absolutely re-traumatized and mistreated and abused. And that is what I want to focus on today, how the church and ministries end up gaslighting and re-traumatizing and the victims and enabling the abusers by not being educated on how to properly deal with these situations. And so that's why we're talking about it today. Uh, this really has a lot more far-reaching um, effects than just the actual Ravi Zacharias story. Now, when I made that public post, I had a lot of comments underneath that were supportive and thanking me, thanking me uh, of, of you know about shedding light on this. But there were also some other types of responses that I want Sarah to respond to. One person commented under my post, no one was abused. They were willing participants, not to mention masseuses. Sarah, can you respond to that? Well, first of all, Elizabeth, being a masseuse does not equal being a sex worker. And if a masseuse was also happening to be a, to be a sex worker, what business does a celebrity pastor who is a Christian apologist have in taking advantage of a sex worker's services? So that's a red herring. It's a completely, yeah. it's a distraction. There's no logical Absolutely. thing there. And besides that, saying no one was abused is to ignore the role of power and celebrity and influence in this situation. And the bigger issue is, was Ravi guilty or not? 
That's the bigger issue. And and we know that he was guilty via his devices and all of the naked women that were on his devices that he was actually even conversing with and requesting um, for their, their images. Um, another comment from my post was, he's dead. So what's the point? God dealt with him. When you're dead, should people write about everything you did that was against God? Respond to that, Sarah. Uh, he, he may be dead, but his victims are not. Yes. And the people that he caused injustice to are not. If there was a serial killer who died, would we stop investigating to give the family's closure of all the children or women that he killed? Of course not. We would want to know the facts. Also, right. he ran a multi-million at least dollar international industry in the ministry. And there were hundreds of people who worked with him who were on some level, part in some way of enabling this to happen. They are not dead. Accountability must be had. Okay. Another question, another comment I got under my post, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. How do you respond to that, Sarah? (laughs) Well, This is a biblical quote, but it is misapplied in this context because God is a God who loves justice. He is the Lord of heaven's armies, and he says to fight for the vindication of those who oppress the widows and the orphans. Women who are trafficked, women who are exploited would fall into that category. So saying that he who is without sin throw the first stone is... uh, That's actually when the woman was being surrounded by all the men who wanted Jesus to condemn her. What did he do? He didn't condemn her. He started writing their sins publicly until they all ran away because they didn't want to be exposed. He returned. His reaction was one of justice, was one of not sin leveling and saying, oh, well, we've all told a white lie. What's what's exploitation of sex, sex trafficking? I mean... No, these are not the same thing. Can you fathom being, um, so Robbie had a, a victim who came out years before he died, I think in maybe 2017, with uh, her story. And it was humiliating to come out with her story. And she had nothing to gain for coming out with her story. And she came out and was absolutely mutilated. Her life was destroyed. Her family's lives were destroyed. Can you imagine being her um, and going into a Christian bookstore and seeing Ravi's books <laughs> about living a righteous life and marriage and family? Can you even imagine her viewing Ravi's funeral in which everyone chose not to believe her previous accusations and sing the praises of Ravi, people who have never been through trauma have no idea, no idea the trauma that that family endured watching all of that go down. Just had to say that um, before we move on. Another comment. I am sorry for this post that you put up. This person was upset with me. Even if you believe all that you have heard, this post does nothing but hurt the work of Christ. Just look at all of the responses that are hateful. I have followed you for quite a while and I have enjoyed it, but this is wrong. Never did Christ say to destroy a brother in Christ, but to try and 
bring them back to the fold. I can't imagine the hurt this kind of judgment does to his family. Please respond, Sarah. You are not doing the destruction here. Robbie did that to himself. Mm -hmm. If we do not want our choices to be the kind of choices that made public would destroy our family, then we should make different choices. We should not depend on deception and darkness to keep our family feeling that we are loyal and faithful to them. Telling the truth about what happened is the only way now to bring healing to the victims who have been kept in the dark. And God says, Ephesians, those who flee from the light, it is because they are doing evil and they don't want their sins to be exposed. But if we are people of God, we will also be people of the light. We will expose sin. We will speak truth. So what you are doing The simple answer is Robbie destroyed himself. Speaking the truth about someone's actions only reveals what was actually going on. I do want to say that a false allegation against someone is an absolute tragedy. It is evil and it is criminal. And God is very clear that bearing false witness against someone is a very serious crime. And he made sure that there were very serious consequences to that. And so Sarah and I are not in any way justifying a false Uh, allegation uh, with this episode here today. Uh, This was not a false allegation. Uh, The things that Ravi was accused of doing, his own board, ministry board, ended up having to say he was absolutely guilty and they were very apologetic to the victim for what they had caused her to endure by their previous statement that had tried to declare Ravi as innocent. And so I do want to say we, um, Sarah and I are just absolutely disgusted by the thought of our, uh, maybe a family member of ours, maybe an uncle or a grandfather or a son or a brother being falsely accused of, of something. But statistics show that 92 to 98% of allegations of sexual abuse are proven true. So statistically, chances are very low that an allegation is actually false. We hear about, you know, the occasional false accusation here and there and ends up getting a lot maybe of of coverage, but the statistics show uh, that most allegations are true. Who would want to embarrass themselves, humiliate themselves with such an accusation um, if, if it were not true? One out of three women in the church have been sexually abused. One out of five men in the church have been sexually abused. Child molesters have 50 to 150 victims before they are first arrested, statistically speaking. Oh my gosh, 50 to 150 victims before they are arrested. The numbers, guys, are staggering. The rest of that quote and that, that quote that child molesters have 50 to 150 victims before first arrest is from the book Predators by Anna C. Salter. I highly recommend it. It is a must read for every parent, every youth leader, every clergy member, every spiritual or community leader. Read that book. But the rest of that mm. quote is, and many more after. Because right. first arrest almost never nets enough criminally evidentiary stuff to end up getting someone charged and put away. Fewer than six out of every 1,000 rapists spends even one day in jail. Mm. 
So we have a huge number of mm -hmm. unreported and unprosecuted when reported sexual abuse situations in this nation. Right. In fact, so the numbers are, yep, go ahead. You, you said we would all worry about a husband or a son or a father or a grandfather or an uncle being falsely accused. The, mm -hmm. the statistics are, because you just said one out of five men in the church have been sexually abused. The son, mm -hmm. husband, uncle, brother that you care so much about has a far higher chance statistically of being raped or assaulted by another man in the church in than the church. he has of being falsely accused of sexual assault of someone else because it's three to five percent false accusations which is in line with false accusations mm -hmm. for theft and carjacking and other right. crime what we should really be more worried about is the amount of sexual abuse for male and female in the church because the the boy or the man that you love so much is far more likely to be sexually assaulted than to be falsely mm. accused of sexual assault. Mm. Good, Good point. point. So, so we know that sexual abuse is rampant in our society. Assuming that churchgoers or homeschoolers, you know, couldn't possibly be abusers because they're in the church or because they're in a homeschool family is just a very naive assumption. And you know, hopefully nobody in our audience actually thinks that, but I think we behave that way a lot. Um, in fact, abusers, as you're mentioning, are known for hiding inside of the church. They find that a good cover, an alibi, if you will, of sorts to cover for their actual crimes. So we've got to stop with the naivety and we've got to get educated about how to help others in these crises. Um, one woman made this comment under my post though. She said, I am so glad to see you're speaking out 21 years with an abusive Christian husband. And then when I decided to file papers, I was spiritually abused by my church to top it all off. Here is what this episode is about. Right there. This is the crux of this episode. As if divorce was not traumatic enough, as if all of the abuse that you've been enduring or all of the, you know, pornography addiction, whatever you've been enduring is not enough. When the church then turns its back on you or believes the actual abuser, as opposed to you, the person who has proven good character, this is absolutely evil. This is a major problem in the church today. I want to read to you another letter I got after I made my post about Robbie. Someone emailed me and said, this may not make it past your screen into your hands. I understand, but I still wanted to try. Thank you for your brave voice. I'm the victim of abuse. It was a short marriage, five years, but toxic and abusive from the honeymoon until the day friends and family helped me sneak out. I won't go into details, but he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder by three highly respected psychologists. One who the church, one, one of the psychologists who has an office at the mega church I have attended and volunteered at for going on 22 years. Long story short, the church gave him a pass. He's got three diagnoses of narcissistic personality disorder which is very serious disorder. And the church gives him a pass. 
He told them God came and healed him of all his problems, and now he's a Christian. And even though many church members, as well as the psychologist whose office is on the main campus, went forward to them to express concerns, they chose to go with his story and give him a chance. He's now leading a small group of men. God only knows the damage that is being done. He's in a very public relationship with a woman that he began seeing while we were still married, and they run with a heavy drinking and partying group, and he's utilizing online dating sites and luring in victims by using the name of his megachurch while being with his current victim. Anyway, just wanted you to know there are all kinds of church-sanctioned abusers out there, and I want you to keep speaking up. It gives those of us on this end hope. So another thing, Sarah, that you wrote, I know, um, another thing you wrote, you said, oh no, a pastor wrote you, Sarah. And he said, we have a crisis in our congregation. And to be honest, we've made some really big mistakes. He says, the way we handled it at first, we didn't realize we were failing to support the victim. We didn't realize the abuser's repentance was manipulative. We will see this often, guys. I found your videos and realized that when we tried to help, we actually made it worse. Will you help us? Wow, what an amazing pastor. (laughs) He says, how can we fix our mistakes? What can we do to make our church safe for the victims now? How can we best support those who have been hurt now that we know more about trauma? Sarah, how did you answer that, pastor? First of all, I choked up because there are not enough pastors with this frame of mind. Your spirit of humility and being eager to learn more in an area where you have not been trained much, it doesn't speak to your lack of of expertise as a pastor. It speaks to your incredible humility of character. And that's a beautiful thing. So I had to kind of wipe my tears for just a quick second. And then we, we got down to business and I broke down what I do with safer churches, intensive trainings and consults for pastors and for church leadership groups, because it is so important for pastors to better understand how to respond in situations like this. The baseline is that very often pastors, spiritual leaders, leadership teams, friends in church, we jump straight to the end game. We start talking, oh, we found this out. How do we reconcile it? How do we restore it? Mm -hmm. And that is not the first step. The first step is safety. Safety Mm -hmm. of those who are vulnerable in this situation and staying with safety for as long as it has been proven in order to see that repentance is taking place and that this person who has been harmed is going to be able to find stability. We don't worry about reconciliation, restoration, jumping to the end possible thing. We have to let it go step by step. And your responsibility as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, number one is to refer to others who are qualified in trauma and addiction and whatever is going on. Number two, if there are minors involved, is to report to law enforcement, full stop. Mm -hmm. Number three, when there are no minors involved, if there is 
assault involved, if there is danger involved, report to law enforcement, full stop. Number four, focus on how to keep the victim safe. Reconciliation and restoration may come. I believe it is possible because I believe in the gospel. But I also know that statistically speaking, about one in 10 abusers or predators, actually it's fewer than that for predators, but abusers or addicts will actually do the hard work. So your job is to keep the victim safe. That's it. Let God handle the accountability. You don't try to play God to idolize restoration as the end game before safety is established. That's good. That's good. And we're going to talk about where what resources at the end of this episode we can refer pastors to. That will be a great, great help to them. Um, Sarah, I believe that the Bible teaches that men are to be the loving leaders of their homes. And I have been very enmeshed for, you know, well over 20 years in very conservative, patriarchal, if you will, large homeschool family circles. And it's just become very clear to me that there are many in these circles who are taking this message to an extreme and they use the, uh, you know, the submission message and doctrine um, as a cover to hide bad behavior. Uh, Women are losing their personhood and their voice in these types of marriages. Um, I, I have witnessed it time and time again. I'm not throwing... I'm not throwing the true biblical teaching out with the extremes. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but let's stop pretending that these extremes don't exist and that abuses don't exist and that this doctrine isn't a convenient cover for the bad people that are in the church, just like the bad people that are out in the world. Well, the people in the church actually have a cover that the people in the world don't have. What the men do is they say, submit woman, hush, you're being disrespectful. And we we as submissive women feel like we have to do that and we can no longer speak up about the issues that we have in our marriage. And so we are actually at greater risk inside the church than those outside of the church. Can you address the danger of taking this teaching to an extreme? Absolutely. So in order to address this, we have to start with a baseline understanding of love versus power and control. You see, Mm -hmm. when we look back throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the only person who sought for power and control was Lucifer, Satan, the devil. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to take on the power of God without having the character of God. Because Mm. what Jesus Christ does with his power is he comes to die in our place. Mm. So if we want to say that men are first, men are the leaders, That means living like Christ did, first through the gate of danger, first to say sorry, first to serve, Mm. first to sacrifice, first to die. That's what Mm. Jesus did. Now, I choose not to get into the complementarian versus egalitarian conversation because that Mm -hmm. is so fraught with bombs and it is a minefield. Here's where I look at it from. Galatians 5, 19 to 22. These are the behaviors that will not be in heaven. And that includes hostility, Mm. abusiveness, immorality, addiction, angry outbursts. Those will not be in heaven. 
right. the, the behaviors that will be in heaven, the behaviors that are the fruit of the spirit are nine, very simple, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, traditionally, especially under a patriarchal umbrella, we think of kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control as female traits. These are the nurturing qualities of a wonderful, godly woman. But Paul does not set a gender requirement on these. He says, these are the fruits of the spirit. That means that biblical manhood is to be loving, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, good, self-controlled. And so if a husband is using his power to control others instead of controlling himself, to be impatient and hostile instead of good and tender and gentle, to be brutal instead of kind, then he Mm -hmm. is out side of acting as a believer. He is living as an unconverted person and he is using his power for control and domination the way Satan did. Right. That, and I, I know that's a you big back. bomb. Like I just, yeah, pff, right. There. Right. <laughs> but it's what Paul says. Yeah, it is. A, uh, lots of mic drops in the scripture for sure. And, um, <laughs> and the scripture doesn't cover for abusers. And we need to stop covering for abusers to preserve a phony and fake reputation of a perfect family that does not exist. I mean, guys, it just doesn't exist. You're, 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 uh, you're lying to yourself. When we cover for abuse, and often as good wives, we are taught that the loving thing to do is to cover it to make excuses for it, to make apologies for it, to believe in the goodness. The sins, right? Yes. So we, we misapply that where God says, do not eat with these people. Do not connect continue to be involved with someone who is abusive and divisive. Do not fellowship with them. He doesn't say, unless it's your husband, then you're stuck. Mm-hmm. If we don't speak the truth, We are teaching our children that abuse is normal, that God is mean, that God is not loving. We are participating in misrepresenting the character of God. And if we look at the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If we are calling ourselves Christians and believers, but we are complicit in darkness and evil inside Mm -hmm. of our homes, then we are taking the name of God in vain. And we are misrepresenting God's character to the next generation. That is Mm -hmm. huge. Yeah. And just like scripture says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So Sarah and I, um, really want to see, uh, people that are in abusive situations, get freedom and deliverance from that. Um, and we want to see these families rescued and reconciled, and we want to see these children kept safe. And in order for that to happen, you're going to have to expose some things sometimes, and it's not comfortable, and it's not always um, pretty and neat and tidy. And this next question is a tough one for me, Sarah, because I've heard you address some things about some books that have actually been on my bookshelves, my conservative Christian bookshelves. <laughs> Don't you love the way you do that? Um, how are teachings <laughs> how are teachings in current evangelical books on sex and marriage enabling abusers? Oh my goodness. 
this is a whole episode in itself, but I, I will give you a sound bite, a short version. And that is very often, many of the most wildly popular books in evangelical Christian circles, the ones we all have had on our bookshelves, are actually written from a perspective that enables men to continue to abuse by framing things such as men have sexual needs and you just have to show up for it. Mm -hmm. Then we are taking the sacredness and the beauty of God's gift of sexuality within marriage and we are making it an obligation and a duty. And we're saying that if a man doesn't get everything he wants whenever he wants it, it's the wife's fault, whatever choice he makes. And that's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that we stand before God for our own choices, that we receive the fruits of our choices. We re are rewarded based on the things we choose to do. So if we choose to cheat, if we choose to betray our vows, that is, that is on us, not but these, whether or not we got these books, every, Sarah, met every time we want. Yeah, but these books go further than that. They don't just say men have needs. What 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 is it? Can you recall some of the the teachings in some of these books that um, place women at risk? Well, for example, um, there are books that talk about. Uh, do you want me to name names? Name, name the books. books. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the big ones is the Every Man's Battle series. Right. The, the Every Man's Battle series, uh, I actually have like a 45 minute book review on this on my YouTube channel that goes point by point. Okay. Go over there yeah. and get that. We can't, we don't have time for the point by point version here, right. but it addresses men as completely incapable of controlling themselves. And right. it confuses actually sexual criminal behavior with just mm -hmm. being a normal guy. And these are yeah. insulting messages to men because I believe Christian men are better than this. Oh, I gosh. believe that God's yeah. spirit in the godly man does not leave him groveling in the dust of his own sexual desires where he is helpless and uncontrolled and can only deflect blame onto the world around him. One thing I have an issue with with every man's battle is that it gives so many examples of just extreme, disgusting, like criminal and abusive sexual behavior that it almost makes the men who are reading it, who just have your uh, normal average porn addiction, feel better about themselves, feel like their sin is nothing compared to the extreme examples that are, that are given. And again, it just does a lot, I feel like, to just normalize and say, oh, every man deals with this. And, and uh, you know, and, it, and, and it's just very normal. And, and then it's very hard for pastors to and people in ministry to hold these men accountable because they're saying, yeah, but I read every man's battle and look at what these guys are doing. It's yeah. every man. Right. Well, right. And, and, and let's take it even further than that because our teachings that create duty sex, obligation sex, where you just have to give it. And then you are giving your husband sex, not out of the beautiful sacredness of the gift of love and intimacy and connection that God has designed for it, but you're giving it to him because if you don't, it'll be your fault. You believe right. if he watches porn right. or if he cheats. Now tell me, I want to ask a logic question. Do you believe 
that God teaches that we should save sex for marriage. Yes. So do I. Great. We agree. So where do we get off saying that everyone who is not married is expected to be celibate and still be clear thinking. But once you have a ring on your finger, if you aren't giving your husband sex every 72 hours, he's going to be foggy. He's going to be prone to prostitution. He's going to be driven to porn. So how is it that a single man is expected to function normally as a capable human being with self-control, but a married man is expected to not even be able to begin to control himself unless his wife is providing every sexual whim when he wants it, as he wants it. Wow. Golden question. Never made sense to me. <laughs> the, the logic is so lacking. It's just like, yes, okay, exactly. How, how do we teach this? They do not exactly. make sense together. So good, Sarah. So good that you're shedding light on these issues. All right. I wish we had another hour. I've got one last question and we, um, Sarah and I have agreed that we may continue this conversation uh, a couple of months from now. She may be able to come sit in my actual podcast studio yes. and continue this, this conversation because there are just so many issues inside the issues that we could talk about that it's, it's just overwhelming. So, but we just wanted we just wanted to crack the issue here with my audience and make sure that uh, people, especially women, are beginning to get the help that they need. Here's my last question. How can pastors and counselors change what they're doing now to better support abuse survivors and advocate for the abuse survivors in their churches and share about your ministry resources that you know that these pastors need? The most important thing that you can do as a church leader, and honestly, the same thing goes if you're a spouse who's going through this, but as a church leader, your most important step is to educate yourself. I get it. If you are concerned about going to secular materials because you want something from a gospel point of view, that's why I have something that I am going to give your audience for free, Elizabeth, and that is my advocacy resources list. It has apps books, links, articles, YouTube channels, podcasts, you name it, things from a safe Christian gospel-centered point of view on how to deal with this. Also, I do intensive trainings for leadership, clergy, lay members who want their churches to be safe places for the vulnerable. I have a book called Safe Churches. I co-authored this one with two others, and it is about responding to abuse in the faith community. It's available on my website and on Amazon. And I have online courses. One of them is called Shiro. This is my primary online course, Shiro, Your Wild Guide to Warrior After Abuse. And it is all about being a warrior for Jesus Christ and for the truth and the light after you have experienced and survived trauma. We have workshops and I'm going to do a special giveaway for your audience. Awesome. And this is my systems of abuse behavior chart. It's so hard when you're in the middle of an abusive system, whether that is a church structure or a work structure or a family structure, it is so hard to see the patterns for what they are. 
And I want to help you. If you are dealing with this and feeling confused and in the fog, I want to help you. So I am giving away my systems of abuse behavior chart here to your audience, Elizabeth. All they have to do is go to my website and download it for free. And while you're there, check out the other stuff, tons of resources, including a link to all my private confidential Facebook support groups that are just for women and that are just for mamas who are parenting through trauma, that are just for grandmas who are now trying to figure it out after having dealt with things for a long time, that are just for women in crisis who are trying to figure out how to safely discern what God wants for them in their marriage when they're dealing with these types of situations. I've got all of those there at Wilderness to Wild, and I want your audience to know that they are not alone. That's so good, Sarah. And I'm in one of Sarah's private groups, and I want to encourage all of you to get connected. We are going to link all of this uh, in the captions so that you will immediately be able to have access to all of these resources that Sarah has given us. Uh, We want to make sure that pastors, ministry leaders are equipped to uh, not enable abusers and empower abusers, but to help the victims and to hopefully ultimately see reconciliation in families. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the on the Conversations with Elizabeth Johnson podcast today. And I want to ask everyone viewing to please share this podcast with others if it's been a blessing to you and make sure you connect with the resources that we link in the caption. Thank you, Sarah. God bless you. Thank you. Have a great day.